Our episodes contain graphic information that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Would you like some murder with your coffee? Welcome to Morning Murders. I'm Nicole. I'm Amanda. And I'm Brenna. What? And we are three gals like to sit around, drink coffee, talk about true crime, and tell you that we have a merch store. <gasps> we have a merch store. Have you bought your merch yet? Yeah. You had a merch? You got, got a, a merch, merch, merch. And it's, it's, uh, merch simple. on over to the merch <laughs> store. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very specific things. It's just small and mighty, and we will add to it as we see fit. Um, speaking of adding things to it, thank you so much to everyone that's been reaching out and adding stories to our repertoire yeah. by telling us about them. Um, make sure you continue doing that. We love getting messages and emails and DMs and all that good jazz. We do, we do. I've been uh, I've been pretty bad about being on the Facebook, um, mm. but I did hop on recently and I responded to some people. So thank you for reaching out on the Facebook. What? I know. It was really exciting. That's really, really cool. nice. Um, yeah, we're on the Instagram all the time, but I'm trying to be better about also checking the Facebook. The Facebook's the worst. <laughs> I know. I prefer Instagram. Yeah. But So if you want to get to us quickly... Email us email or Instagram. Us, most of us don't have Facebook, but no, I'm the um, only one. It's Nicole's just me. The only one. Yeah, she's. The, I'm the only one. She is the book's face. I am the Facebook's mm. person. What? <laughs> oh dear. I went right to the Necronomicon. I'm like, Do book with a face. Necron- what? Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Are you thanks. saying I look like the Necronomicon? No, it's just a book with a face. You act like the not Necronomicon. many books have faces <laughs> upon them. Raising the dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to raise the dead. Oh, speaking of dead, it's my there it segue is. for There's you. There's the segue. <laughs> Ladies and beans, grab your mugs and put down your gardening shears. Have you ever heard of Dorothea Puente? Oh, have I? <laughs> have I. Oh gosh, I haven't watched it yet, but the there's a new show on Netflix called Worst Roommate Ever, and I know she's an episode on it. Whoa, um, she's like the first episode. She's the on first it. episode on it. Uh, her story's crazy. This is a recommendation from my father, so thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. All right. So November 11th, 1988, would be a day that shook Sacramento, California. But before we get there, we need to go back a bit. Dorothea Puente was born January 9th, 1929, in San Bernardino County, California. Both of her parents were alcoholics and died while she was still pretty young. Her father was a cotton picker and died when she was only four years old. Both of her parents abused her, and she would often have to scavenge for food. She was six when her mother died and then went into an orphanage until she was later taken in by relatives in Fresno. Fresno! So my family's from Fresno. Oh. Uh, my, my mom's side. Uh, anyways. She was pa- for Fresno. Uh, so she was passed around a lot in the orphanage and had a rather difficult childhood. She would continue to scavenge for food, and she lacked a real sense of stability, even after she had finally been taken in by relatives. She created her own version of her childhood. She claimed she was one of 18 children who had been born and raised in Mexico. 
She thought that that was a better version than what she'd really been going through. Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, a criminologist, said that Dorothea's childhood most likely shaped how she ended up, since she had no secure or stable caregiver. She herself didn't really know how to be one and really only looked out for herself and what would serve her. Mm. So she was married in 1946 for the first time. She would have a total of three marriages. Her first husband died of a heart attack only two years after they were married. She started to forge checks for money and was caught eventually. She was sentenced to a year in jail, but she was paroled after six months. She became pregnant shortly after her release and gave birth to a baby girl. She put the baby up for adoption, and years later, in 1986, they would meet again, and she would describe her mother as a woman with no real personality. But... Before that, in 1952, she was married for a second time to a man named Axel, and they had a violent 14-year marriage. In 1960, she was arrested for working at a brothel. She had turned to sex work as another way to make money. She spent 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. Shortly after, she was arrested again for being homeless and spent another 90 days in jail. She stayed in the dangerous, miscellaneous illegal work for a bit, but once she learned about a job as a caregiver, she quickly switched gears. Turns out, you don't really need many qualifications to be a caregiver, and she took on that role fairly easily. Mm. She started out caring for elderly and disabled folks in private homes and then moved into managing a boarding house. She finally divorced Axel in 1966 and married her third husband, Roberto Puente, in Mexico City. The marriage only lasted a few years, and she ended up taking and keeping his last name. Before the end of that marriage, she took over a boarding house on 2100 Street in Sacramento, California. It was three stories and 16 bedrooms. She took in folks in need and provided comfort and care. There were some red flags that started to show up here, however. There was a homeless man named Chief who displayed some odd behavior. Dorothea had adopted him and made him her handyman. He would dig in the basement and cart over soil and any rubbish in a wheelbarrow. He installed a few concrete slabs as well, hmm. one in the basement hmm. and one where a garage once was. But shortly after he finished all of this, he disappeared. Hmm. Now, there is mention of a very short fourth marriage, uh, Pedro Montavlo. You and the Pedro. I know, all the Pedros, man. Uh, <laughs> he was very abusive and the marriage only lasted a few months. So... Most people don't really talk about it. Uh, Dorothea then started showing up at bars looking for older men who were receiving benefits, then began to forge their signatures in order to steal their money. She was caught, again, and charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud. But Dorothea was a headstrong lady. If she put her mind to something, she stuck to it, and she continued to forge checks, even when she was on probation. All right. Then, in 1981, she started renting an apartment in a boarding house at 1426 F Street in Sacramento, California. Ladies and beans, get a fresh cup of coffee ready, because here come the murders. So shortly after she moved into 1426 F Street, she met Ruth Monroe. Now, Ruth was a 61-year-old who raised five kids on her own after her husband passed away. She worked with a man named Harold, who would uh, flirt with her and ask her out a lot. She finally caved and went out with him. They started dating, and he introduced her to his friend, Dorothea. The ladies hit it off and became good friends. Dorothea wanted to open a restaurant, so her new good friend Ruth took what money she had and opened up a little cafe. Then, Ruth married Harold. 
Not long after they were married, he got cancer and he had to stay in the hospital. Mm. All her kids were grown and she didn't want to live alone. So when Dorothea suggested she move in with her at 1426 F Street, Ruth and her kids all thought it was a great idea. Mm. Her son Bill even helped her move in. He would visit her every day after work. He would stop by and spend time with her before making the drive back to his home. Two weeks after she moved in with Dorothea, Ruth died. April 26, 1982. Three days before her death, Bill said that she seemed like she'd been getting sick. She was even drinking alcohol, which wasn't really normal for her. She had told her son that Dorothea had made it for her to help calm her nerves. Things got worse from there. The next time he saw her, which was right before she died, she was basically in a catatonic state. Mm. She was just lying there. He took her hand and told her, Dorothea's taking care of you. You'll be fine. Ruth didn't say anything to him. He did say that she had a tear fall from her eye, though. The next day, his brother called. Their mother had died. The cause of death was said to be suicide. Dorothea said so herself. She was depressed because her husband was terminally ill, and the police believed Dorothea. It was a major shock to Ruth's family. She had never shown any signs of being suicidal. But nothing more could be done. Yet. In August 1982, Dorothea got into some trouble with the authorities for abusing her position as a caretaker for her tenants. She pled guilty to forging signatures on social security checks and cashing them. She was convicted on three charges of theft, and on August 18, 1982, she was sentenced to serve five years in prison. She was sent to the women's prison in Chowchilla. During her time there, she got herself a pen pal, Everson Gilmouth. He was a 77-year-old who lived in Oregon. He picked her up in his red 1980 Ford pickup when she was released in September 1985. She only served three years of her five-year sentence. They became a couple, and he started to live at 1426 F Street. They even opened a joint bank account together, and he agreed to pay $600 a month to rent his new apartment upstairs at the boarding house. He became very distant with his family. Every time they would call, Dorothea would answer and say he was out or unavailable to talk. He seemingly cut all ties with his family. Mm. Later, in November of that year, Dorothea hired a handyman named Ismal Flores. He installed some wood paneling in her apartment and a six-feet-by-two-feet box to uh, store books and other items, she said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She paid him $800 and gave him a red 1980 Ford pickup in good condition. She asked him to wait as she filled the box and asked him if he would help her take it to a storage unit. He agreed, and they left together. On the way, however, she asked him to stop while they were on the Garden Highway in Sutter County. She dropped the box on the riverbank. Flores asked her why, and she simply stated, it's just junk, and they left it there. (laughs) She went back to forging Social Security checks for her tenants and keeping most of the money herself, violating her parole, but she didn't care. She liked her system, and no one was going to stop her. Three years later, on November 11th, 1988, police made a visit to the boarding house at 1426 F Street. Judy Moss 
filed a missing persons report for a 51-year-old man named Bert Montoya. He was one of her clients, and she had stopped hearing from him. He was a diagnosed schizophrenic and suffered from other mental disabilities as well. Detective John Caparera, who worked for the Sacramento Police Department as a homicide detective from 1980 to 1996, investigated the disappearance. He ran a background check on Bert and his caregiver, Dorothea. As he was getting ready to head over to the boarding house with the small team, uh, Judy turned to him and said, you guys better take some shovels. He was puzzled and asked why. She said that she had driven by there in the past and had seen mounds of dirt that kind of looked like a burial site. Oh. John listened, and they took two shovels with them. When they arrived and knocked on the door, this sweet little old lady opened the door and said, I was expecting you. She told them she had been in violation of her parole and she'd been told not to run a boarding house anymore but was able to get away with it for three years because of her charm and sweet demeanor. Mm. She would often even take out her teeth and claim to be 10 to 15 years older than she actually was Genius. to gain sympathy. I know. Genius. Oh, I'm so innocent. Look, I have no teeth. <laughs> so she let them in and John looked around. He wasn't able to find anything. He told Dorothea they would report back to the social worker that they didn't find anything and then asked her if he could uh, dig in the backyard. She looked at John, paused a moment, and then said, Why don't you guys go back to the office? I know you have better things to do. I'll call some people and they will dig in the yard for you and then you can come back. Clever as she thought she was, John was no fool. He thanked her for the offer and said that since they were already there and had shovels, it was no trouble. <laughs> Can you imagine that? It's cool. Shovel from behind the back. Yeah. We're prepared for this. Oh. He Good. said, I know, right? He said that if they put anything out of place, they would do their best to put it back. She agreed. They even borrowed one of her shovels since they'd only brought two and there were three of them altogether. Once John and his team started, they had no idea what horrors they were about to uncover. John found a cloth, and once he was about three feet deep, he hit what he thought was a tree root. He tried to repeatedly break it without success. Finally, he just straight up grabbed it and started pulling on it. It broke off, and once he looked at what was in his hand, he realized it was no tree root. It was a human femur bone. Yeah. Yep. yep. Bones, baby. <laughs> he looked up at Dorothea, who was shocked. She even put her hand on her mouth and knew nothing about it. She said she'd been in prison, and while she was gone, a lot of people lived there. Oh. This house was built on an Indian <laughs> burial ground, yeah. and they they only moved the headstone. <laughs> yes. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they stopped digging. It was going to be a much bigger task than they thought. So the next day, a full forensic search began. John took her down to the Hall of Justice and properly questioned her. During his interview, he even said, I bet if I keep digging, I'll find more bodies. She looked at him and said, well, if you do, I didn't put them there. <laughs> After the, I know. <laughs> Just in case. Sure. Just in case. <laughs> After the questioning, they returned to the boarding house. On November 12, 1988, the full search began, and Laura Santos, Sacramento County Deputy Coroner from 1980 to 2004, was in charge. It was madness. The press got word of what was going on, and they were 
everywhere. Laura recalled being yelled at to turn towards the camera while she was digging. But she was a no-nonsense person. She had a job to do, and it was an important one. What she would uncover could possibly mean the difference between a guilty or non-guilty sentence. While digging was going on, Dorothea called John over. She asked him if she was under arrest. He was taken aback and said no, and asked why she thought that. She said that the whole thing just made her nervous. She said she'd like to get a cup of coffee and go to the hotel around the corner where her nephew was. John said okay and told her to get what she needed and that he would walk her over there. A few moments later, she came back in a little red coat with her purse. He told her he would walk her over because of all the media and the people around. He didn't want anyone to bother her. He walked her to the hotel and watched her go inside. He then went back to the boarding house and continued digging. Shortly after he resumes digging, he finds a human leg. Mm -hmm. The second body had been uncovered. They needed Dorothea to come back to the boarding house. Things were now getting very serious, and she wasn't looking good. However... When they tried to locate her at the hotel, she wasn't there. Yeah, no shit. No like shit. Really hilly. They're like, she's like, yeah, you can put me in a hotel. I'll definitely stay there. Yeah. I won't give you any problems. Yeah. I'm just so tired. Oh, this little lady. Oh, little lady. A clerk there said that she did walk in, and then she went to a payphone and made a call. Minutes later, she stepped outside again and into a taxi. She was gone. So now they enlisted the help of the FBI. Yeah. Back at the dig site, a man approached Laura and said he had some information. He told Laura that Dorothea had hired him to dig up holes in the yard and paid him in cash. She had told him that she was uh, burying trash. He proceeded to tell the officers each location he dug a hole. Three days they continued the search, and everywhere they dug, they found a body. (laughs) In total, they found seven bodies. And no one ever witnessed the bodies getting buried. One body was particularly chilling. She was found on November 7th by the sidewalk. She was missing her hands, head, and feet. Whoa. To this day, those body parts have never been found. Mm -hmm. Five days after her escape on November 17th, Dorothea is found. A man who was having drinks with her at a bar had gone home to see her on his TV. She was wanted, and he quickly called the police and informed them of where she was. When they had shared drinks, she told him where she was staying. (laughs) It reminded me of, like, John List got caught. His neighbors saw his that bust they made on America's yeah. Most Wanted, and they quickly called that in, too. Right? See, the system does work sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was in a hotel in Los Angeles, almost 400 miles from Sacramento. The police acted quickly and arrested her. The two teams met at the airport where the transfer took place. She was back in Sacramento County's custody. When she was back with John, he asked her if she was okay, and she said she was. Then she turned to him and said, Mr. Caparera, I'm sorry. There was still no proof of murder at this point, and she wasn't going to confess. She was booked in Sacramento County Jail, and after one last attempt to get her to confess, she never agreed to speak to John again. Okay. A big challenge was identifying the bodies. Uh, They needed to do that in order to build a case against Dorothea. Most of the bodies had no teeth or only a few, and most of the tenants that stayed at the boarding house were homeless or didn't speak to their families anymore. Mm. Laura was very diligent, and she successfully got each body properly identified. Hell yeah, Laura. Yeah. In the case of Bert Montoya, his mother was actually still alive, and she'd been looking for him for 13 years. Damn. Mm Mm-hmm. 
She was now 92, and he was living with her in New Orleans when one day he just left and never came back. When she was given the news of his death, she was heartbroken but also grateful that he could finally be returned home. Autopsies were done on the bodies, and it came back that each one had trace amounts of Dalmain, a prescription sleeping pill. None of the victims were prescribed this sleeping pill. You know who was? Hmm. Dorothea Puente. And when Dalmain is combined with alcohol, it can be deadly. It puts you in a catatonic state and overwhelms the body and can even stop the heart completely. Uh, Bobby Chacon, an FBI special agent, said that female serial killers use poison a lot more because it doesn't require a lot of physical strength to overwhelm a victim. He claims that it's more difficult for a female to overpower her victim using physical strength. To that I say, eh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I get that. And sure, maybe that is it. Poison's also like, I don't know. You don't catch it right away, depending on what the poison is. But I think of, like, our good old lady Lizzie Borden, who didn't, obviously, chop her parents into bits. Did not. She did not. She did not. So, by the end of the investigation, Dorothea was charged with nine murders. The seven bodies that were found in the yard, Ruth Monroe, once the drug information came out and her family went after Dorothea as well. After the autopsy, it was found that she had obscene amounts of undissolved pills in her stomach. And the ninth victim? Remember that uh, box of junk? In early 1986, the box was discovered by a fisherman who informed the police of this mysterious box. Once opened, the police found a badly decomposed body of a John Doe. It wasn't until the case broke in 1988 that it came to be known that it was the body of Everson Gilmouth. The entire time, Dorothea had continued to collect his pension and lie to his family. Damn. So the trial was held in Salness, nearby uh, Monterey County. The defense was concerned about her getting a fair trial in Sacramento because of all the media coverage. She was on remand, which means she was held in prison until her trial for four years. Mm. The trial would not be an easy, cut, dry type event. She made no confession and didn't intend to make any type of confession regarding the murders. February 9th, 1993, the trial finally began. She admitted to burying the bodies and even to continuing to collect their social security money, but she maintained that she was innocent of murder. Bill, Ruth's son, testified at the trial for his mother, Ruth. The whole trial took five months. The jury heard both sides. The defense played the, yes, she's a thief card, but she's not a murderer. She looks like everybody's grandmother. The prosecution used the trace amounts of Dalmain in the victims, proving that they had been poisoned and she was the only one who was actually prescribed that medication. August 26, 1993, the jury took 24 days to deliberate. Dorothea was found guilty of three murders. That's it. Three. But the other was a deadlock for the other charges. The three were from the seven that had been found in the backyard, which is odd because they all literally had the same things. Right. All poisoned by Dalmain, all buried in the backyard, all former tenants, yet the other four were an 11 to 1 vote. One juror said no. So, the judge, Michael Verga, had no choice but to declare a mistrial for the other six murder charges. Jesus. Which included 
Ruth Monroe. I know. There was a retrial mentioned, but the money it would have taken was too great, and the idea was just let go. Mm. December 10th, 1993, Dorothea Puente was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She was sent to Central California's women's facility in Chowchilla. She remained in the limelight while she was in prison. She even wrote a cookbook called Cooking with a Serial Killer in 2004. (laughs) Catchy title. (laughs) I know. In 2008, she agreed to speak with journalist Martin Coos from Sacktown Magazine. She kept him waiting, though. He sat in the prison waiting section for a long time before she finally graced him with her presence. It had been 15 years since she had been seen or heard in the public's eye at this point. It was the 20th anniversary of her arrest. Martin, who had never interviewed a serial killer before, asked her about the murders, and she looked him right into his eyes and said, I'm not guilty. She never admitted to her crimes, to anyone. He visited six times and then suddenly stopped. She asked him to buy her $115 worth of gifts, and he asked her what it felt like to be thought of as a murderer, and she said to him that she didn't give a shit about what anyone else thinks. After that conversation, he no longer desired to be in a room with her. Yeah. Rex Julian Bieber, a forensic psychologist, talks about how there is a theory that she didn't act alone, that she, in fact, had an accomplice or got other tenants to help her. Help or be another victim type thing. You better help me or else. She was a very tiny old lady, and her victims were often much larger than her. Moving them and bearing them would have been quite a task. March 27th, 2011... She died in prison at 82 years old, and she took all of her secrets with her. Bill, Ruth's son, talks about feeling happy when he learned that she died. He would never be able to forgive her, and now that she was dead, that was just it. It's over. He talks about how he knows he should forgive her, that it's the human thing to do, but his heart just isn't in it, and he can't do it. And that really made me sad. I watched the interview of him talking about this and all the hate and anger in his eyes just made me really sad. Because we've talked about this before, the art of forgiveness and what it really means. It's it's more for you than it is for that person. Mm-hmm. You forgiving and letting go, you release yourself of that energy and it holding you back and you don't give them that power, right? You keep it for yourself if you can forgive right. or let go. Hate and holding on to hate can grow and fester in such awful ways in your mind and your body and can take physical form. And it's more powerful to forgive and not let them have that power over you. But I also get it. I'd like to take a moment and mention the victims. So we have Ruth Monroe, 61, Everson Gilmouth, 77. The bodies that were on her property were identified as Bert Montoya, 51, the third body that was uncovered. Dorothea Miller, 64, Benjamin Fink, 55, Betty Palmer, 78, Leona Carpenter, 78, James Callop, 62, and Vera Faye Martin, 64. Dorothea picked people that others wouldn't miss. She preyed on those she said she was going to help. She picked people who were broken and lost. She was a wolf in sheep's clothing, if you will. All she wanted was money, and she wanted to get it her way. She took what she wanted from people who trusted her, and then she disposed of them in the coldest of ways. She never showed any remorse. The house is now owned by Tom Williams and Barbara Holmes. They have turned it into a macabre monument of, to Dorothea Puente. Ugh. Yeah. It is considered a historical building, built in 1985 and unable to be torn down. It still has its original flooring, and even items that had been left behind are still there. 
There is a room in the house called the death room, and it's where it is believed that she would take her victims to give them fatal amounts of dalmain and alcohol and leave them there until she could prepare them. When the carpet was pulled back, there was a horrible odor of death. Bodies were left in there on the floor for two up to four weeks, just seeping into the floorboards. Tom and Barbara have made the house their own, though, and have fully embraced the house and the tourists that seem to flock to it. There's a plaque on the house that says, the house is innocent. (laughs) I know. And that, my ladies and beans, is the story of the lady who looked like everyone's grandma, Dorothea Puente. Any final sips? I've heard this lady's story more times than I would like. She just (laughs) sucks. I feel like more than one time is, you know, too many for her. Mm. Um, But something I feel like uh, I'm taking away from this, my little sip, if you will. If we don't teach kids how great life can be, they have to make up their own versions of reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those times where, like, she wasn't given a chance. Like, she, of course, had this horrible upbringing Mm -hmm. and then she I'm not saying that this gives any excuse by any means but it's just I'm like huh how did this happen and I'm like well this is is what she thought that life was because there wasn't anybody to tell her that like no life can be good people can be amazing this is how you should treat people and so unfortunately if we don't be those cool adults kids are going to make up their own reality. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the reality includes taking advantage of people for their own good. Mm -hmm. That sucks. Yeah, if love was transactional for them in their life and times, then that's kind of what it turns into in their adult life, right? When they have control. So crazy. And, like, she's one of the reasons why people support the death penalty, because she Mm. never gave answers. Mm -mm. You know, it didn't Mm -hmm. matter how old she got in prison. She still never, never, she didn't get close to her deathbed and give a confession on her deathbed mm-hmm. as to where like that's so romantic to think about um but it doesn't most more often than not they just die mm-hmm. <laughs> saying they're innocent forever you know right mm-hmm. so I know that that's why some people believe in that but it doesn't make it a good thing to believe in she still died regardless in prison mm-hmm. so sucks to be her <laughs> at the end of the day yeah right? it does Sucks to, sucks to suck, as we say. It sucks to suck. It does. Uh, my final slip is this. Uh, when you are in a position of a caregiver or any position where you are opening your arms to help people who need help, you have to be responsible. You have a responsibility to do good. Trust is such an important thing, and to take advantage of that is such a terrible thing. These people were grasping for hope and for kindness, and she put on an act, and it breaks my heart. You don't... If you don't want to take care of others, you don't have to. You don't have to help people or heal them or help them get back from their terrible mistakes. You don't have to do that. It is a choice. It's a choice to do that. It's a choice to do that and to help them be better. So you don't have to do it. She chose to put on an act and fake it and take advantage of these people and steal their money. And it's horrible. There's enough darkness in the world. We need people to to bring more light in. Go do something else. Don't cause more pain and suffering. She could have done something really cool with her abilities to match signatures. You know, do something creative. Make art. I don't know. Something. Just don't <laughs> steal from people and murder them. Make fake art and sell it off as real. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. yeah. Work for Disney and do Disney character signatures. I don't know. Also, don't work for Disney. Because uh, she's a horrible person. I don't want her near children. Uh, 
I don't know. <laughs> That's not the, it's just, what she did is never the answer. It's never the answer. It's just not. I mean, it, she had a horrible growing up, like like you said, too. And and that makes, that's awful when you're not given those abilities to, to pr- maybe make a better choice. But still, she just, she can, she kept getting caught and continued to make bad choices. She kept going back to the same thing. Doubled down. Yeah. Ugh. But I, uh, I have shared a link to the video that is uh, a, compiled of her interview her inter- her very long interview with um, Detective John, um, and it's fascinating to watch it. Uh, she really plays up the old lady card, and she even says, "I couldn't drag a body. I'm an old lady." <laughs> it's it's really good. It's great. I also shared a, another documentary that I watched too. It's in the in the show notes. Um, but yeah, that's Dorothea Puente. Thanks, Dad. And thanks, uh, Dad. Thanks, Dad. I need to. I'm still gonna check out the um, the episode of Worst Roommate because she's like, oh, like you said yeah. the first episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Ooh, well, thank you, Beans, for going thanks, on Nicole. that journey. Oh, thank thanks, you, Nicole. guys. Yeah, thanks for going on the journey with me back to this boarding house from hell. Uh, <laughs> this has been another terribly wonderful episode of Morning Murders. Yeah. I need to work on my gardening skills. Mm. Mm. For bodies. For bodies. <laughs> for plants. For bodies. For bodies. Thank you for listening to Morning Murders. Remember to stop by every Monday for a new episode. And you can always check out our resources and mental health links in our show notes. If you enjoyed listening to our highly caffeinated conversation, please leave us a five-star rating and check us out on Instagram. At Morning Murders. That's at M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-M-U-R-D-E-R-S. If you have any stories you'd like to hear discussed around the breakfast nook, email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Thank you for listening! Tattoos. 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 I just sent you guys one that I saw. It was, it's What's like that? a bunch of books and then a coffee cup on the top of it. I saw it. it. Coffee cup. Little coffee cup. Good. Good little knife. A oh, knife! A <laughs> knife! It would be cool to get, yeah, a knife or like a... <laughs> The cleaver thing that we all... Oh, yeah, our necklaces. That would be very cute. Ex-cleaver knife. Not against it. Hot in the cave. 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 Make it a fan. That's your your vacation? Is that from your vacation? No, this is actually from a work trip. Oh, My rental car information. Ew. I see. <laughs> Fan yourself, go. Reminds me of modern styles class back at college. Oh, yeah, we all had to have we a had fan. We had to have fans. That was a requirement for class. To have a, a fan? Skirt. Have yeah. a fan. Fan and a skirt. Because you had to learn how to, like, there's, like, a language of the fan and, yeah. like, oh, yes. how mm-hmm. to, like, yeah. Close it, hold it. Yeah, all oh, those yes. things. Dramatically yeah, open it shirt. to make a statement and close it. So sure. clack fans yep. just been clacking. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what you're telling me. Oh, yeah. Clacker's gonna clack. Clacker's gonna clack. Clack. Right, let's do this. This is warm. Brenna, 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 Banana, 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 banana,
Nicola banana. Nicola banana. Nicola banana. Nicola banana. Nicola banana. A man duck. A man duck. But on a zodiac killer. Nicola banana. They even opened a joint bank account and paid. And he even. They even opened a. And have her. All she wanted was her way. All she want. Mm. Mm, uh. Uh. Mac. Ugh. Uh. Yeah.